Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, and today I have a special guest host with me, city reporter Ethan Burks, who has been covering this issue that we're going to be talking about today. And that issue is the Unified Development Ordinance. We're going to be talking about that and its Plex amendments here on Noon Edition. We have four guests joining us on the program today. We have Jackie Scanlon, who's the city's development services manager, Dave Rollo, Bloomington City Council, District 4, Matt Flaherty, Bloomington City Council at large, and Mark Cornett, who's an architect and an urbanist who's been um, a vocal um, participant, I would say, in the the conversations about uh, this issue. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions for the show to news at indianapublicmedia.org. So thank you all for being here. And uh, Ethan, it's great to have you on as co-host today. I want to start the conversation with Jackie Scanlon to just give us an overview of, of what the city council has done. So what's now allowed that wasn't allowed before? Great. Thank you. Um, so this discussion, I think, so correct me if I'm wrong, is focused on the Plex uh, changes to the ordinance. We've made a number of other changes, uh, over 100 uh, corrections and things like that to the code uh, during this process, but I think we're here to mostly talk about the Plexes. So I will uh, describe what those changes are. Um, the council approved uh, a changing triplexes from permitted to conditional in the R4 and four plexes uh, will also be conditional in the R4. Um, and those would require uh, use specific standards. So the R4 is one of our new zoning districts. Um, and then duplexes would uh, be permitted uh, in that district as well, also with use, use specific standards. In the wider, um, primarily single family residential areas in the R1 through R3 zoning districts, um, duplexes were approved um, as conditional in that area, uh, again, with use specific standards related to um, development characteristics on the site, um, as well as a 150 foot separation um, of those that are approved uh, for two years and uh, a total citywide cap of 15. We've seen that um, some information is indicating um, a cap per neighborhood, but it's actually just 15 for the entire uh, area for those three districts. Um, so that is what um, was uh, approved by council and it will go back to plan commission on June 14th for ratification. Yeah, I just wanna ask you for a, a little clarification down there. There was a zoning map that um, had, didn't have R4 on it for a while. Is that correct? I mean, there was some change, there were some changes made to the zoning map that um, maybe, uh, well, just limited the, the places where these three plexes and four plexes could go. Is that, is that right? No. So um, 
when we did the um, overhaul, the repeal and replace update of the code, we also did what's called a conversion map. And um, council approved a map that all it did was change the names of the districts because we were having uh, uh, new titles. Um, so that was obviously only for districts that already existed on the map. Um, so the map didn't change at all. Um, just the names of the districts changed. The lines didn't change in the areas where those um, districts were located. And because R4 is not, uh, was not previously in the code, it's not on that map. It was never on the map, um, but we have not released, we did not do um, an updated map without R4. The map that council just approved um, uh, within this uh, last month is uh, is the update uh, that comes along with the um, overhaul and um, uh, final uh, ending of the process of the comprehensive plan and UDO update. Okay, thanks for that clarification. And you are absolutely right. We're gonna be talking about plexes today primarily. So, all right. I want to ask Matt Flaherty, um, Matt, why is this a good thing? You know, what we've done here and the changes that have been made, uh, you've been a, a strong supporter of it. So what's this going to do for the community that's going to bring benefit? Sure. Thanks for having me on today. Um, and thanks, Ms. Scanlon, for the overview. I think we're probably most specifically talking about duplexes um, uh, being re-allowed and uh, most most or all residential districts in town, um, which I think is pretty strongly supported by our comprehensive plan, as well as the climate action plan uh, that the council recently um, accepted unanimously. Um, so duplexes are kind of the smallest form of what's sometimes called missing middle housing, uh, which the comprehensive plan calls out and describes as duplexes, triplexes, courtyard apartments, townhomes, um, of work units, these types of, of homes, as the comp plan correctly notes, often offer uh, more affordable and sustainable housing options for the diverse needs of Bloomington, which is why they're an important part historically of uh, Bloomington's housing and, mo and most, ha most cities' housing um, ecosystems. Uh, over the last number of decades, if not uh, half a century or more, in most cities, these, these um, types of housing forms have largely disappeared, so that you mostly see large uh, you know, 50, 100 unit or more uh, multifamily units um, or detached single family homes, and that's all. So that's why it's sometimes called missing middle. Again, duplexes are kind of the most incremental uh, um, and smallest step forward on the missing middle housing front. And I think they play an important need for the housing, uh, the housing needs of, of Bloomington, or a play important role for the housing needs of Bloomington. Um, and I think it's worth noting that. Uh, with the restrictions and, and use specific standards and buffer and total number cap, some of the things that um, Ms. Scanlon mentioned, I think where the council landed and the ordinance we passed is a, a very, very incremental step and cautious step forward on this front, which I think is reflective of some of the diverse views among community members and among council members uh, and represents very much kind of a middle ground or compromise. Um, I think it's also important to note that we agree on a whole lot more than we disagree in this community uh, on the housing front and on the council. Uh, and second, that I think we all have shared values of equity and sustainability, housing affordability and inclusion, but that even with those shared values, uh, we can we can have principled and civil policy disagreements about how best to achieve those goals. And I think that's what we saw here. Um, and then just a final note uh, that, of course, duplexes and, and small-scale attached housing, missing middle housing, uh, is just one part of a, of a whole suite of policy tools that help move us towards 
our community's housing goals. And I hope that we can maybe discuss some of those other tools a little bit today as well. So thanks. Yeah, absolutely. We can we can go whatever direction you guys want to go. So I want to ask Dave Rallo. Dave, you, you uh, proposed, you and Susan Sandberg proposed several amendments, a couple of them um, I think passed, but uh, a major- majority of them did not pass. So, you know, what's your um, sort of overview or your final um, thoughts about what the council has gone forward with? Uh, yes, thanks, Bob. Um, well, suffice to say, I'm diametrically opposed in, in terms of my view to my colleague, uh, Councilmember Flaherty. Um, I think there are two aspects of my objection. One was process and the other is outcome. Uh, with regard to process, I, I don't think we should have taken up such a profound change in zoning affecting the entire community um, during a time of a pandemic. Um, it was it prevented gatherings, obviously, and it required virtual Zoom meetings. And I see this as a non-inclusive, undemocratic process. And that was really an objection brought by uh, members of the community from multiple neighborhoods that wanted a pause on this process. But we went ahead. And uh, I see, the, as I said, the, the outcome is a monumental change in zoning that is uh, a, it's a sweeping act of deregulation, essentially. What we eliminated, what we did was that we eliminated single-family zoning uh, in all of Bloomington. And uh, I might add that this will apply to the, to the annexed areas that we'll consider annexing uh, later in the summer. Um, it turns back the clock, in a sense. Uh, prior to the Tommy Ellison administration in the 80s and 90s, which were efforts made to moderate the effects of excess rentals in, in core neighborhoods, and uh, to advocate owner occupancy uh, in those neighborhoods, uh, and then efforts to prevent over-occupancy. Um, so what this does essentially is in, it incentivizes conversion of single-family homes um, to duplexes, to rentals, I would say, um, because ADUs are permitted if one lives in the, uh, the residence. Um, and there's an enormous economic incentive to do this. So we, Councilmember Sandberg and I, work to try to moderate this, to, to put guardrails on, as you said earlier. And uh, the First Amendment, which failed, would have removed the duplex, duplexes from R1, R2, and R3. Um, the, the Second Amendment, which was, I think, sponsored by Councilmember Piedmont Smith and Councilmember Sims, applied conditional use, which is incrementally better than permitted, which is what Derived, was derived from the Planning Commission. Um, as uh, Ms. Scanlon said, uh, the Amendment 3 uh, that Susan Sandberg and I authored was to limit the number of duplexes in R1, R2, and R3 um, to 15 per year with a 150-foot buffer uh, for two years. And then uh, Amendment 4 was, a, was an affordable housing amendment, which would have essentially... Um, allowed a limit of two bedrooms per unit in the duplex with additional bedrooms requiring income of eligibility. Um, that amendment failed. And then the final amendment was uh, failed as well. And that was restoring code uh, that was formerly present in the UDO uh, for the BZA to con- consider adverse impacts and uh, traffic congestion. So that's that's an overview of the, the process that we engaged a couple of weeks ago. All right. Well, I want to ask Mark Cornett because you, you participated in the process and, 
if you could give me, uh, you know, your take on, you know, how your input was received, just the process in general, and, uh, you know, where, where you're going to go from here and, and trying to uh, get your voice heard. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on today, uh, Mark Cornette, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak today. I echo uh, Dave Rallo, Councilmember Rallo's position on process, and I, I mean, maybe this shows my age, I'm an old timer, but um, I like to see the people I'm talking to. I like to uh, be able to have a, a back and forth dialogue and close the, uh, close the loops, and we, we, we miss that. And this was a profound moment in the future of not only zoning policy, but the future of Bloomington uh, in terms of its housing options and opportunities. And we, we, missed, we, missed, a, we missed a great opportunity to have face-to-face -face dialogue and, and advocates of the Zoom process will say more people participated, but I'm looking for quality of participation. When, when I'm, uh, whether I'm leading a workshop to talk about neighborhood uh, planning opportunities or just participating as a member of the public. And I think it was, was a missed opportunity. And, and I'll follow that up by saying that, you know, we had some chances here to, I'm going to throw in the hospital site, not directly answering the question, but throw in the hospital site in forms of a discussion about what we could have worked on in the interim to develop a, a really active strategy for moving the housing dilemma forward in a positive way, we could have tried out all of the missing middle housing options that that term gets thrown around pretty loosely in these conversations. And, and we chose not to uh, take those things up. And uh, it's, it's disappointing. And where do we go from here? I'm going to be active in talking about how to make the ADU, the accessory dwelling unit, uh, process as transparent and um, easy to understand as possible, working with local banks to try and advocate for encouraging homeowners with home equity to pursue that option for increasing density in the core neighborhoods. I think that's really the road forward with what we have to work with right now. All right. Well, my guest host, or my guest host, co-host today is Ethan Burks, and Ethan has been covering this issue and and I'm going to ask him to uh, weigh in now with his first question to start, um, hopefully, a, a robust conversation about, about where we're going from here. Thanks, Bob. My first question is to Jackie Scanlon. And we were talking about how initially it was between permitted use and conditional use for how duplexes would be implemented into zoning districts R1, R2, and R3. Jackie, can you dive in and give us a little bit more detail about what conditional use means? Sure. Thanks, Ethan. Um, yes, so I'll clarify that the um, proposal put forward by um, the administration and the Planning and Transportation Department um, proposed that uh, the duplexes be conditional in the R1, R2, and R3. And they also we also included the 150-foot separation uh, for two years that was later then taken up again uh, by council members Rollo and Sandberg. Um, and uh, the reason that we proposed it as conditional um, was because of what we heard from the community that people were worried uh, 
And um, we, as we did with the accessory dwelling units in the conversations in 2017, if you go back and look at the minutes, it's a lot of the same uh, rhetoric and concern um, about uh, primarily the historic neighborhoods or those immediately adjacent um, to town. Uh, and uh, what we found with the ADUs and what we think we'll find with the plexes is that um, including the process as conditional um, from the beginning will um, provide an extra layer of review and extra time um, and opportunity uh, for more people to be involved. When something is conditional versus permitted, uh, it has to be approved by either the Board of Zoning Appeals or the hearing officer. In this case, uh, it will have to be the Board of Zoning Appeals. Um, that was included in the amendment um, put forward by um, Council Member Piedmont Smith and Council um, Member Sims. Uh, and so basically, if you would like to do a duplex, you will have to meet the use specific standards listed in the code, um, as well as uh, be able to show the Board of Zoning Appeals that you meet the 10 criteria uh, in the code um, related to conditional uses. And so those are included in the code uh, in order that uses that are very likely compatible in areas, but could possibly have um, um, unintended consequences if they were above a certain scale, for example, um, those types of uses are conditional uh, so that the Board of Zoning Appeals can look and see if there are likely uh, detrimental effects um, from that use because of unique situations on where it's um, asking to be located. Um, so uh, permitted, they wouldn't have to do that. Um, they would apply and if they met all of the use specific standards and development standards for the zoning districts, uh, then they could um, apply for a building permit and um, uh, go through that process. Um, and of course, if in a historic district also go to the um, Historic Preservation Commission and that is um, still in place as well for the conditional use. Um, so conditional use adds, uh, adds another layer. That is why some people don't uh, like it and try to advocate against it. Um, but we thought in proposing it that way and then um, having it end up uh, back at that, uh, back at conditional use at the end, that that is a good way to um, uh, slowly kind of roll out this very incremental change. Uh, if 15 max in the entire city uh, if we were entirely built out is 0.1% of the available parcels. Um, uh, it's uh, just um, an option uh, that we'd like to put in and we think conditional use um, helps uh, kind of make that be a little bit more visible um, for the neighbors uh, as these come forward. Now I wanna give Dave a chance to jump in here and talk about that. Uh, Dave, the word compromise was thrown a lot throughout the council's process of passing this new iteration of the UDO. And with conditional use now being the measure for duplexes, is it fair to say that there was compromise in making them conditional, that they have to go in front of the BZA and that the neighborhoods have to be notified? And then also the buffers the 150 foot buffer between lots and then the 15 per year cap. What is it fair to say that there was some compromise in all of this? Well, if compromise means meeting at the middle, it certainly wasn't that. Um, so optically, I'm, I'm, there was an effort to uh, use the, the term compromise. Um, I didn't, I don't view it that way. Um, I think that this is a monumental change and these are very, very modest restrictions. But uh, for that, I'm grateful. Um, I would like to say that the BZA 
will follow the permitted use standards. They're obligated to. Uh, petitions are not denied or very rarely, uh, and this is why I describe it as in just incrementally better. Uh, the outcome is invariably the same in the process. So, um, yes, it, it, it's better than it was coming out of the plan commission to be sure. Um, but um, this is a this is a very profound change, and it affects every every home in Bloomington at this point, uh, unless unless you have a covenant. Let me offer our phone numbers again, or not our phone numbers, but our email address. Um, so you can send us your questions. I know we're going to have a lot of questions today on this topic. News at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Ethan? Yeah, I wanted to circle back to something that Matt had mentioned earlier about how the majority of not only the council, but the community as a whole does agree that Bloomington needs more housing options and at different affordability rates with, you know, kind of the high rent prices and those rates more need to be done below market rate. But I think the major disagreement lies in where that housing will go, where the duplex will be located. And the city's guiding documents on that development is the comprehensive plan, which kind of outlines how development should go, the land use conditions. And so, Matt, I know you and Dave throughout the conversations and the council meetings have kind of had some differences on what the comprehensive plan says about duplexes. Could you kind of talk a little bit about that? Sure, thanks. Yeah, I think, well, a few things. Um, the comprehensive plan um, is perhaps better at defining goals than it is specific policies. Uh, policy development happens a bit later. So depending on how you want to read the comprehensive plan, um, you can kind of read into it what you want. Uh, and my view and the view of the majority of the council and city staff is that the comprehensive plan on whole, on the whole, very much supports uh, reallowing uh, small scale attached homes, or again, that, that next increment of missing middle housing uh, in our neighborhoods where they've always existed. You know, I live in an eightplex in Prospect Hill, for instance. Uh, I, in a two block walk from my home, there is an ADU, there's several duplexes, there's a triplex. These have always existed within the fabric of our neighborhoods. So if the goal is to maintain um, the current scale and form and uh, and patterns of our existing neighborhoods, then missing middle housing is an important part of that. I've known in my time in Bloomington, a lot of people who've lived in these housing types uh, and they are quite often um, lower income uh, or moderate income adults who work at nonprofits, who, um, you know, maybe single adults. We have an increasing number of single person households as the whole country does. Uh, so so um, on the density front too, I guess it's worth noting that our neighborhoods have been decreasing in density steadily over time, over the last number of decades. Uh, so uh, knowing that allowing more people to live closer to where they live and work uh, is better for supporting transit, is better for the environment. Um, again, this type of housing is, is important in meeting a lot of the goals that are comprehensive plan, sustainability action plan, transportation plan, and climate action plan all call out. I mentioned the climate action plan, which, which was most recently developed, uh, specifically calls for um, allowing these types of, of housing forms in, in uh, most residential areas. Again, um, so I'm trying to <laughs> flip through my version of the comprehensive plan here to, uh, to, to have some specific quotes on hand. Um, but I know there's, there's um, calls for um, uh, 
a diversity of housing types and to meet a diversity of housing needs within neighborhoods. Um, uh, I mentioned earlier how we talk about, uh, you know, the important role that missing middle housing uh, types can play in providing affordability uh, needs and sustainability needs for our community. Um, here's one, for instance, policy 5.1.3, encourage a wide range of housing types to provide a more diverse mix of housing opportunities and house, household income levels, preferably within neighborhoods and multifamily housing developments. Um, so, so again, I think um, my view and, and the view of the majority of council was that um, our plans do support this incremental step forward. Um, I know that Council Member Rallo and, and Sandberg and some members of the community disagree, um, and I'm sure he could point to a, a phrase or two from the comprehensive plan um, as well. Uh, two final points. One is that um, a lot of this depends on your understanding of the evidence and data around missing middle housing and how these housing types meet needs. So really robust, comprehensive evidence um, from the American Community Survey and others demonstrate and show that these housing forms support substantially more racially diverse uh, and moderate income uh, populations. Uh, and the facts are also quite clear that this is a, a, a greater sustainability uh, for this housing type. So, but if you don't, if you reject that, that evidence of that research and what urban planners say about this, then you might have a different uh, view about what the comprehensive plan says or does not, because you don't think that, um, you know, a duplex is, is a good housing type to help us meet those established goals. So, it's kind of a complex picture, I guess, is, is the, what I'm trying to say about um, how we use the comprehensive plan for guidance and how reasonable minds can differ about what that points to. Uh, so I'll stop there, thanks. And then Dave, I'll give you a chance to show your opinion. And I pose the same question to you about your interpretation of the comprehensive plan. Thank you, Ethan, I appreciate that. Um, well, first of all, I do agree with Councilman Flaherty that we need a data-driven policy. Um, I just object to an application to a city of ours, which is ours, with 50, 40 to 50 percent uh, student-driven housing market. And there are, you know, uh, specific instructions within the comprehensive plan. For instance, it reads, existing core neighborhoods should not be the focus of the city's increasing density. Avoid placing these high-density, meaning plexes, forms in single-family neighborhoods. Uh, the conversion of dwellings to multifamily or commercial uses should be discouraged. Um, so there are multiple cases where it instructs, and it actually instructs us where to put the density. That is, that density could be used with a purpose, and the purpose that is directed within the comprehensive plan is to create village centers. So to use this type of density on corridors and neighborhood edges that then would facilitate uh, uh, this kind of density with a purpose, with, a, with, with village centers. Think of Hillside and Henderson, for instance, as an, as an example. That would have been the optimal approach. Uh, regarding the Climate Action Plan, I am absolutely 100% behind it, but I see this as counter to it. Because what I see is in a student-driven market, rentals pushing out people who would be occup occupying single-family homes, converting them to rentals, and those families moving out to, to the periphery, where it's going to be much more intensive in terms of carbon output. So I don't see this as, as climate-friendly at all, this broad-brush approach. So that's what I would say in, in, in response. I would also say that back to the question about compromise, um, Jackie Scanlon mentioned the R4 district, which was undescribed. It was a novel uh, zoning area. 
And then it was finally, you know, manifested in this, this latest revision. Well, we were originally told that that would be undeveloped areas, not neighborhoods, but it then, it then occupied a large number of neighborhoods, then was scaled back. And the, and of course the, conditional use of uh, plexus within R2, R1, R2, and R3 were proposed uh, simultaneously. So the R4 would have been a good compromise. The R4 would have been, which contains hundreds of single-family homes that could be converted, but the R4 would have been a compromise alone um, without the R1, R2, R3 being included in plex development. Thank you. I have a follow-up that uh, came from one of our Listeners, I'm going to address it uh, to Matt, and then hopefully, Mark, you can also jump in on this one. It says, um, how can we actually measure, encourage, and or enforce affordability levels for current and future Plex developments? What are our realistic options to provide affordable housing for people at workforce levels and below using the Plex forms? Matt? Sure, thanks. Um, First, I would say that enabling um, small-scale attached housing, um, it's lower cost to build. You share the cost of land over multiple units. Uh, the units themselves tend to be a little bit smaller. They consume less energy because of attached walls. They tend to have lower transportation costs, perhaps enabling households to have one fewer car uh, because you're closer to where you work or have access to transit. So there's a whole suite of reasons why these types of housing provide deeper affordability at market rates. And that's a really important distinction. There's two types of issues here. We have subsidized affordable housing, which anybody, you know, at probably 80% AMI or below is going to need some form of subsidy. There's very little uh, um, market rate housing out there that will meet the needs of folks at that income level. And we do have a whole range of tools um, and, and even more tools we could use like community land trusts uh, to address those low-income and very low-income needs that will always probably require subsidy. But to ignore the role of housing affordability, which is to acknowledge that there's a whole range of, of affordability uh, options out there at market rates, depending on what type of housing you build, uh, would be a mistake. So townhomes are another thing that we could do more with uh, because, again, they, they are lower cost to build, they have smaller lots, and they are more affordable to live in at market rates. So when it comes to affordable affordability for uh, moderate income and workforce um, housing needs, uh, you, we actually do need to rely on the market to provide some of that. The market provides most housing and by careful regulation, it was mentioned earlier that duplexes represent deregulation. I, I don't think urban planners agree. That would be like saying, changing something to a commercial use from an industrial use is deregulation. It's just, it's just a different regulation. Uh, so allowing these uh, historic forms, like an accessory dwelling unit, that wasn't deregulation either, neither is a duplex. It's just a different type of house that is allowed and historically uh, consistent with Bloomington's residential neighborhoods. Uh, so allowing those more affordable housing types, again, the, the evidence is very robust on, on the substantially deeper affordability of these housing types. Uh, you help to meet that whole range of affordability needs that subsidies simply cannot meet all of. Uh, so that's, I think, a somewhat nuanced point, but urban planners and housing economists understand it very well and, and pretty overwhelmingly support these types of changes uh, to zoning. Uh, but it's it's often lost in the in the public debate um, where we think of affordable housing and market rate 
uh, housing costs as a binary, that market rate is luxury and can't be affordable, and that affordable housing is the only way to address needs. And I just think that's not reflective of uh, the nuanced picture we have in, in our in our town or um, the the urban planning and housing economics research. Mark Cornett. Hi, thank you. Um, in order for us to understand that research that, that's talked about, we have to ignore the uh, demographic problem that we have in Bloomington. We have, as, as, as Councilmember Rollo mentioned earlier, we have a near 50% um, uh, need for student rental housing. And, you know, sometimes you even, you, we get slapped down when we talk about students, but in fact, that is the elephant in the room in this particular case as a rental cost outcome has nothing to do with the students as people per se has everything to do with the investment opportunity that their rents pay for. We have an imbalanced system. The duplex uh, process will do nothing to undo that. And in fact, what we really should have been doing in talking about affordability, what we should have been doing was to encourage as much ownership in as many pe different people's hands as possible. S building city wealth collectively really goes back to the principle that you want as many different people to participate in that wealth building as possible. It's a tried and true um, proven strategy that home ownership, you can even call it forced savings, is one of the few ways that most regular folks have to build intergenerational wealth. And I never thought I would live long enough to see how suburban sprawl and the term single family zoning would be flipped on its head and used to undo the qualities of the core neighborhoods. The core neighborhoods, in fact, have never been single family zoned. That was a term that was arbitrarily applied to those neighborhoods post-construction. They predate zoning entirely. They are full of, as Matt correctly mentioned, duplexes, small apartment buildings, corner grocery stores that no longer are corner grocery stores, but the remnants are still there, um, on and on and on. That is true urbanism. Whether you read Jane Jacobs, the, the, the life and death of, of, of great American cities, whether you look at the debates that have raged forever about public housing in Chicago, St. Louis, New York, that's long since been demolished in most cases and considered a bad idea. Our urban planning history is littered with bad ideas. I'm most frustrated personally as an urbanist and a professional in the design field that we have ignored the history lesson that's staring us in the face and that the core neighborhoods were quite effective in delivering affordable housing. And uh, contrary to Matt's assumption, the existing housing stock and the existing construction is in fact where our affordability lies. My concern mostly is related to the idea that duplexing will most likely, and there's no data to contradict this in Bloomington, it will lead to rental housing. And we know where rental housing ends up in the proximate areas around the university. And I, I, I would subscribe that this is almost a taking of the affordable housing stock in the city of Bloomington. And it's unfortunate 
there are plenty of ways to do affordable housing in terms of, of looking at that history. Um, Matt correctly mentioned row houses. There are models that could be added, but zoning has never been an effective tool to add those models. And if you actually drill down and read Dan Parolic at Opticos, who, who coined the term missing middle housing, he talks at length about the design aspect of implementing those strategies. It's a planning, urban planning problem and solution to be solved. It's not a zoning problem solution to be solved. Where he makes a mistake, in my opinion, is when he says single family zoning is a barrier to achieving missing middle housing. That has to be, that remark has to be qualified, in my opinion, when you talk about Flemings. Because I think we've just unleashed the rental dynamic to uh, consume more of our community. And I've got some, I've actually got some, some numbers here from the lexicon of new urbanism, which is written by a number of leading um, authors in, in new urbanism and, and old urbanism, the optimum housing mix by type in urban areas for sale, detached housing is maximum of 50%, minimum 42%. For sale row house, which would include live work, is 18% maximum, 10% minimum. So those two combined with for sale apartment, for sale apartment and loft, which would mean condominium, of course, at 20, at 18% and 11% constitutes for the bulk of where your housing activity should be concentrated. You don't even get to the category of rental apartment and loft until you're down to 29% maximum. We are already over twice that number in rental housing. We should have done everything we could to encourage ownership, to encourage diversity of ownership. And we've in fact opened up the community to increase investment rental opportunity. And I find that quite unfortunate. All right. I want to tell our listeners that you can still send us questions at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I know that some of you have been getting um, a, a message back saying that Sarah Whitmire is out of the office, but rest assured that uh, your questions are coming to me and coming to um, to Ethan, and we're trying to get to as many of them as we can. I know that um, the, the Jackie Scanlon wants to respond to this question, and so does Dave Rollo. If you guys could keep it fairly, fairly short, I'd appreciate it. But Jackie, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, I'll do my best. There was a lot in there uh, from Mr. Cornett. One thing I just want to point out, we've said this in the public meetings, again, with the rhetoric, we hear a lot where people say we want to have increased home ownership, home ownership opportunity. Well, on one property before this change, you could have one house, one homeowner. Now you can have two units with the opportunity for two homeowners. And so if, if, if all we're trying to do is increase the opportunity for homeownership, then that's what this does. If what we're trying to do is decrease the opportunity for rental, because this also increases that opportunity, then, then that is right. And then, then this policy is not appropriate. But what we hear people saying is we want opportunity for more homeownership. And when people use the ADU example and say, well, that allows homeownership, it allows one homeowner and one renter. It's a, a renter is built in. You cannot own an ADU. So it does not open an opportunity for homeownership 
uh, as greatly as the opportunity for Plexus does. And I will just not respond to everything uh, he said, but I, I will make one point, and we do hear this as well quite a bit. You know, to me, just looking at looking at the actual data and hearing someone who I know has worked in this town for decades say that existing neighborhoods are effective for affordable housing is just so shocking. You know, the the median income, the median sale price for a home in Elm Heights in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic was $40,000 greater for the same number of homes that sold in 2019. And it's over $400,000. And yes, Elm Heights, not everyone is going to live in Elm Heights. I totally understand that. Prospect Hill 2019, almost $220,000. That isn't affordable for our area. These neighborhoods are great. They have a lot of amenities and we are trying to make them be available for more people. And as uh, uh, Council Member Flaherty points out, if you have two units on one lot, you can look at data, you can look in areas now where people uh, split ownership of duplexes. When you purchase half a duplex, it is going to be cheaper than if you were to purchase one home on that same piece of land. So we are trying to uh, increase that opportunity for people to be able to locate in places that yes, we have a community have have acknowledged are great and offer amenities and positives uh, for those who are fortunate enough to be able to live there. I'll stop Dave, Rallo, Dave Rallo, one minute, and then uh, Ethan has another question from a listener. Sure. Uh, well, housing studies indicate that we have a dearth of single family homes. And so Mark Burnett is right that this, this is going to drive up the, the costs of those single family homes because it's going to eliminate them. Uh, it's faith-based to say that they're going to be owner-occupied. The market's going to drive it, and the market's going to say, we can make the most at renting. So they're going to be rentals. Um, and uh, the most affordable homes are, the, are going to be the ones that are most you know, vulnerable, I think, uh, for return on investment. So think of small homes near campus and Green Acres and Eastside neighborhood that will be a gold mine. And then, you know, regarding affordability, well, we had an affordability amendment. And that was rejected by council. And that would have established 80% to a 120% AMI requirement, which was essentially aiming at workforce, 120% AMI, area median income. And um, the proformas indicated that the profit margin was very healthy on that, at some 30,000 or more for duplexes with amendment four. And yet that was rejected. We lost an opportunity. We gave away a public good and we, and which was through the upzoning, and then we didn't capture what we should have in terms of affordability, and we just turned it over to the market to decide what these things will rent for. Thank you. So we have a lot of listener questions talking about the UDL process moving forward, and Jackie, I think you're best to answer this. I know there's a time requirement on how the city is supposed to report and update the public on what's going on about duplex petitions and so on and so forth. Could you talk about the details of that and how that process will be carried out? Sure. Uh, so as I mentioned, the, um, um, the ordinance related to duplexes uh, will go back to, to, excuse me, to all plexes, will go back to the plan commission in the middle of June. Um, if they ratify the changes that were made by council, uh, then the mayor will sign the ordinance and it will um, go into effect. Six months after that, uh, pl uh, planning and transportation staff will report to the administration, plan commission, and council 
um, on um, what we have heard so far uh, related to uh, people requesting or inquiring about uh, being able to do flex to do um, flexes and um, uh, those that it have any if any have filed uh, those types of things. So we will be um, updating those three groups and obviously, of course, members of the public by doing that at their public hearings um, on the status of uh, any um, any movement on plexus. And then that brings up another question I have is that throughout not as much as the council's deliberations, but the plan commission mentioned this a lot. Well, if we pass this measure, we can go back and change it later. You know, we can make the appropriate changes. We can do some little tweaks here and there. But how realistic is that, Jackie, to be able to do? Because, you know, with a lot of things in city government, it takes time. There's a process. There are a lot of steps and hoops you have to jump through. So how viable is that solution if, for, say, the next six months to a year, we do see a problem with allowing too many duplexes, or maybe we don't have enough? How would that work? Uh, It's very viable. Uh, We've done it before. Um, We did it when uh, the new administration wanted to review the rules for downtown development, uh, again, from pressure from um, and concerns from the public. Uh, we had a, an amendment to um, change those rules and, uh, while the new UDO process, while the comprehensive plan process was ending and the new UDO process was starting, uh, the rules for downtown development were drastically changed uh, in a matter of months. So uh, I would, I believe it was three months at maximum. I'd have to look that up. Um, basically, we drafted a change, took it to plan commission and immediately to council uh, and uh, were able to um, uh, make those changes. So it, it is possible. We've done it before um, and um, we are more than willing to uh, do that if necessary. Uh, we, you know, we want this to have a positive outcome. We propose it because we think it's a good idea. Uh, if it is um, going to have uh, a negative effect, um, that's not what we're looking for. So then we will uh, need to take it back to correct that. All right. We have a comment from one of our listeners. I just wanted to read. It says that um, she basically says that uh, not all duplexes are rental. She says the duplex next door to me is owner occupied. And then uh, we've had some questions. I just want to, I want to ask Matt about this one, Matt Flaherty about this one. Um Russ sends this in, so you probably know who this is. He said that he cited a lot of research about actual upzonings. Um, the type of upzoning just passed actually decreases housing affordability. He says that uh, you had said at the final meeting that you had some other research that contradicted that data, but that you didn't present any. He wonders if you could cite some of those studies. And, you, you know, you may have talked about that a little bit before. Sure, I believe that's uh, probably Russ Skiba. Um, uh, Mr. Skiba was, I think, the chair of a group calling itself Go Farther Together, which was a uh, sort of lobbying or advocacy group um, that opposed um, allowing anything besides detached single-family homes in neighborhoods. And yeah, I believe Mr. Skiba sent something like a, a what he called a white paper uh, citing eight or nine sources uh, that he thought supported um, uh, the position of that group. Um, and I, I let him know that, that I've spent a lot of time in the research, uh, the urban planning and housing economics research um, over the last uh, really four or five years that I just didn't agree with his assessment, which I think cited kind of two authors um, or studies, one from, one from Michael Storper and one from Yoni Freemark that um, 
have been pretty um, regularly sort of mischaracterized or misapplied in, in some of these housing supply discussions. Um, and similarly, a recent study from Daniel Kuhlman, uh, an Iowa State professor about uh, Minneapolis and zoning changes that I think uh, if you read the full article, which I have, um, it, it's not saying what was sort of presented by that uh, advocacy or lobbying group as opposed to duplexes. Uh, it conflates uh, cost of a lot with home with affordability of homes. The point is is that if a lot increases uh, by two or three uh, percent, perhaps to buy, uh, but you put two homes on it, those homes will be more affordable. So I think it mischaracterizes that article and sort of misunderstands. Uh, the nature of housing affordability when we're talking about small-scale attached homes. Um, I, I was actually going to send this to Mr. Skiba. Uh, I'll just mention it on the air instead, uh, which is that there was a good uh, sort of review of, of this um, discussion around housing supply specifically and zoning uh, recently by Todd Littman, who's with the Victoria, Victoria Policy, uh, Planning Policy Institute. Uh, it came out in an urban planning sort of trade magazine called the Housing, I'm sorry, Planetizen. The post is called the housing supply debate evaluating the evidence and it's a, it's a pretty decent overview of a lot of the things from um evan mast or um, um uh, edward glazer or uh, jason Furman, uh president obama's top economic advisor others that i would have um uh, cited had i had more time to put together resources for mr skiba uh, but this has a, a you know 15 or 16 different articles um in the housing economics and urban planning universe that that speak to um upzoning uh, small-scale attached housing and housing affordability. It does a good job of going over kind of uh, what Mr. Littman characterizes as the three schools or camps in this housing policy discussion. Uh, there are free market proponents, um, housing supply uh, advocates, who he calls housing experts, and then housing supply skeptics. And uh, it's a really good overview piece. It cites a lot of research from Sir, uh, Mr. Skiba and others may have a good time digging into that. So that again is the housing supply debate evaluating the evidence. All right. Mark, I, yeah, thank you, Bob. Uh, Mark, I kind of have a final thought question for you. So ultimately, the duplexes are approved for the core neighborhoods, but there's a cap at 15 per year, as we've said earlier, as part of one of the conditions. Uh, how much of an impact do you think 15 duplexes could really have on the neighborhoods? Well, I I think the cap is also um, potentially a temporary measure. Um, we don't know what the future of the cap is. I mean, just like we can go back and review other aspects of zoning policy, we certainly can go back and review that. So I, I'm not that comfortable with really directly addressing the 15 cap. What I'm more concerned about is that all of the on the ground data in Bloomington, regardless of national and international research, uh, points to the fact that these will most likely be student rentals. And anything that would transform, um, you know, housing stock to student rentals um, wouldn't be something that would we could talk about at the same time we talk about affordability. That's really, that's really the, the core issue. And I I, I'm just not optimistic about um, them becoming owner-occupied. There's so much work that goes into uh, shared property line and uh, the, the horizontal property regime, if you want to get into the weeds about the legal terminology and condominiums and all the work that it takes to do that. I just don't see that as a viable um, um, outcome. 
to the to the duplexing um, proposal. Okay, and, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna let uh, Matt finish this up. Sorry, Mark, but we've got about no thirty seconds to go. And Matt had one final comment he wanted to make. Yeah, just a brief point on, on something Mr. Cornett just mentioned about assuming student rentals for duplexes. Of course, we have 706 existing plexes of some kind in our town. And I started digging into the data here. I looked at about 40% of them, looked at public voter data to determine age of the occupants. And with a pretty sizable sample um, of that data, 89% of occupants of these plexes existing in Bloomington were aged 25 or older. Only 3.7% of the, that sample were age 22 or younger, which is a reasonable proxy for an undergraduate student. So I think this housing type uh, demonstrably with the evidence in Bloomington is not a predominantly undergraduate student rental market. So I just wanted to add that data and evidence to the, the uh, discussion, thanks. Okay, Jackie, do you have any last words that you wanna mention here in the last 10 seconds? Oh, I just wanna say thank you um, for everyone who's involved and um, uh, we appreciate um, the involvement and look forward to reporting back. Okay, we are out of time. Thank you so much to Jackie Scanlon from the City of Bloomington, Dave Rollo and Matt Flaherty, both members of the Bloomington City Council, and Mark Cornett, a Bloomington citizen. Uh, for our producer, Benta Boutier, my co-host today, Ethan Burks, and engineer, John Bailey, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.